evening and a very warm welcome here to the LSC. My name is Sarah Heyman and I am very pleased to chair this um, debate on what do the Italian elections mean for Europe. And this is part of our challenges for Europe series. Now, uh, about one year ago, I chaired a similar event looking at the elections that were due during 2017. The Dutch elections, the elections in France, in, in Germany, in Britain, in the Czech Republic. And that event was titled, 2017, Will the EU Survive? So I think we've come some way since then, and I don't think we have to pose quite that question tonight. Although, of course, we have very existential questions still on the table. But right now we're going to focus on the Italian elections, which will certainly also have a major impact on the direction and the next steps for the EU and for the Eurozone, perhaps in particular. Uh, and I am extremely pleased to introduce a very uh, excellent panel to give you a lot of analysis and um, perhaps provoke a good discussion. Um, and with us today, we have uh, Dr. Miriam Surace, who is LSE Fellow in EU Politics. She joined the European Institute here at LSE in September and came from Trinity College in Dublin, where she did her PhD and uh, finished last year. Um, Miriam specializes in European and comparative politics and has a lot of uh, expertise in representation, European politics, the institutions, etc. Uh, Miriam will be followed by Lorenzo Codogna, um, who is a visiting professor in practice here at the LSE European Institute. Uh, now, Lorenzo has a very long CV, so I'll just mention that prior to joining the LSE, Mr. Codogna was the chief economist and Director General at the Treasury Department of the Italian Ministry of Economy and Finance. And previous to that, he has held uh, positions in the OECD as well as in Bank of America. Last, we will have um, an intervention from uh, Francesco Caselli. Uh, Francesco Caselli is the Norman Sosno Professor of Economics here at the LSE Economics Department and a managing member of the Center for Macroeconomics and Francesco has previously held positions at Chicago University and Harvard University. Um, I should mention before we start that there's a hashtag for tonight's event, and we are obviously uh, pleased if you will uh, debate also online. The hashtag is LSE Italy. But without much further ado, I'd like to give the uh, word to Miriam. All right, thank you um, so much, Sarah, for that, and uh, thank you, everyone, for being here tonight. So what I'm going to do um, in this presentation is very quickly try to um, uh, give an overview of the main actors and uh, what, are their issue, what is the issue that they own, basically, in this campaign. Um, and then, very quickly, again, uh, Italian public opinion, uh, some trends that might be interesting, and finally, uh, polls on vote intention and a prediction on, you know, a seat projection sort of uh, prediction. Uh, starting with Matteo Renzi, the leader of uh, the incumbent Democratic Party, 
Uh, so what I've done, I've, I basically look, looked at the tweets of, of the main leaders um, from the Sicilian regional elections up until the end of January to sort of have a rough idea of what uh, they're talking about. Well, the Democratic Party campaign really hasn't quite started yet. They're still uh, fighting internal fights about, you know, the candidates' lists more, more recently. But definitely it's a campaign that is on the economy. So they're, they're trying to defend their record. Um, the fact that uh, the Italian economy seems to be improving. Um, jobs is a key word. Also very pro-Europe. Um, they discussed very recently in a convention in Milan this idea of the United States of Europe. So a very pro-Europe uh, campaign and, and, and pro-Europe um, party. Um, and then other keywords are culture, uh, science, uh, they're focusing on that, uh, and, uh, and the budget, again, uh, on the economic sort of language that is predominant at the moment in their campaign. Next, we have uh, Luigi Di Maio, the current leader of the Five Star Movement, um, a populist party sort of of the left, but they don't want to actually be categorized left or, or right. They don't want uh, those labels. What they're talking about, though, so that we can have sort of an idea where they stand. So they use the word family quite a lot. It might be a populist sort of way of talking about, you know, the people of Italian families. But definitely they have some childcare policies in there as well. A key word is income. They're proposing this idea of, or they were proposing this idea of universal um, income, which they seem to, it seems to be now sort of um, an employment benefit more than the universal income that people think about, but they're, you know, not very clear on that, but that definitely universal income is a key, it's a buzzword. But they're also trying to reassure finance and businesses, and they talk about the made in Italy and how to um, slash taxes for businesses. Um, obviously, the public health and the environment is another key uh, issue for them. They talk about the euro. They recently uh, moderated their position on that. They, they no longer want a referendum on, uh, on the common currency. Definitely the rule of law, they, 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 were, they started as a movement against Italian corruption, so rule of law is a concept uh, that is there, and poverty. So a little bit of quite left-wing economic policies in there as well. And then we have Silvio Berlusconi um, that cannot actually... <laughs> it's actually funny just looking at him. <laughs> he hasn't... Um, he's quite... Um, you know, he's, he's, he's getting quite popular and he's, he knows how to com campaign, right? He's back. He's definitely back. And uh, his policies are quite right-wing, especially on the economy. So what he's campaigning mostly on is on the flat tax, which is definitely a right-wing policy. So fiscal reform, flat tax, pension reform, so raising the minimum pensions. He talks also a lot about, tweets a lot about Europe and the euro, giving a bit of mixed signals. He's talking about a unified defense policy for Europe, a stronger Europe, but also about double currency recently. So mixed signals there. But definitely a, a right-wing um, uh, campaign on tax reform and, and uh, improvement for, for businesses uh, especially and the middle class. And then we have the other populist party. Uh, this, this one is on the far right, uh, the League, no longer the Northern League, uh, but the League. They have, uh, you know, shifted their othering discourses from the southerners uh, to immigrants. And as you can see, immigrants and illegal immigrants and jail, security, defense, these issues surrounding law and order are, uh, are very prominent in their campaign. Definitely, they're talking about the euro. They're quite Euroskeptics. Uh, they want to change the hierarchy of laws. They want the Italian constitution being supreme over uh, EU treaties, for example. 
And also they talk about pension reform and the flat tax because they formed this electoral alliance with Berlusconi, and so they're sort of publicizing um, these issues together. Uh, very quickly on, uh, on Italian public opinion, two things really to, to, to bear in mind right now. Italians are really, really concerned about immigration. This comes from, uh, from the November Eurobarometer. It's the top priority, according to Italians. It's not surprising given the refugee uh, crisis. Second, terrorism. Um, so even though we didn't have a terrorist attack, um, but, you know, they're thinking about immigration and they're thinking about terrorism. We can make a link there. Um, they're certainly not thinking very well about immigration. Unemployment comes third. Um, and then the second thing to keep, to keep in mind, so they're focused, they're, they're concerned about immigration, but they're also increasingly Eurosceptic. Um, so in this question, only uh, 39% of Italians uh, actually think that uh, the membership of the EU has benefited Italy. And uh, it's even lower than the UK. The UK is at 55%. Um, exit Euroscepticism is another sort of another survey item. In here we see Italy is not uh, as exit Eurosceptic as the UK. Uh, but still, it's well above the EU28 average, which is the red line. So Italians, uh, as of July last year, 44% of Italians would vote to leave uh, on a referendum on, on membership. Moving to, um, to vote intention, um, right? So we're not surprised that, so Forza Italia, F, FI, uh, Berlusconi's party, and the League uh, are in an electoral coalition with FDI, which is Brothers of Italy. And altogether, they are basically the first uh, political force in Italy right now. So if you sum all of their, um, the vote intention for, the, for those three parties, they are the first uh, political force. And we're not surprised by looking at, you know, the, the issues that Italians are, are concerned with. Um, in terms of individual parties, the Five Star Movement is definitely the first party. It's polling at around 27-28%. Uh, um, this is basically the, each poll from January 2017 until now, basically. And we can see that the Five Star Movement is pretty stable, if you look at the average line. Um, the Democratic Party comes second, but we can clearly see a downward trend for the Democratic Party. Um, their campaigning is not is probably not working, but it's also suffering um, from the LEU, Liberi e Uguali. It's the uh, free and equal. It's a splinter party. So the Democratic Party actually splintered in February last year. And as you can see, they're gaining votes, and the Democratic Party is losing a little bit of votes. And so there is an internal split that has harmed the Democratic Party, notwithstanding the good economic um, or improving economic conditions. Um, so, um, yeah, so the, the, the thing to note is basically that Forza Italia is now at roughly 16%, and it's increasing. Um, you know, Berlusconi clearly, uh, clearly knows how to run the campaign, I guess. It's, it's increasing its vote share, even against the Lega. Um, and it, the Lega seats are around uh, 14%. And then uh, Brothers of Italy, which is another far-right populist party, uh, polls at around 5%. If we look at seat projections, this was done by uh, Ipsos. Um, again, we know that predictions are tricky. Um, but they looked at um, sort of vote intentions by region to sort of figure out um, the um, single-member districts. We now have a new electoral law by, according to which one-third of the seats is going to be uh, elected by majoritarian uh, electoral rule in single-member districts. So they tried to predict the total number of seats for each party by looking at, uh, you know, trying to predict single members districts 
as well as the proportional element of it. And as you can see, the center-right electoral alliance is benefiting from entering this alliance because they're pretty much winning a lot of single-member um, districts. Or, yeah, they're, you know, this alliance will facilitate um, in the majoritarian component. But still, they don't have a clear majority in the seat projection. They will have, it's projected here, roughly 266 seats. Uh, the Five Star Movement will come second with 170, and the Democratic Party with some smaller party on the center-left are going to together have 154, and then the Splinter Party, uh, Free and Equal, is going to project it to get roughly 27 seats. So from here, it's quite clear that the center-right is the first political force right now in Italy, but none of these uh, three, uh, none of these sort of... Uh, um, uh, main actors are going to get a majority. And so what coalition are we going to see is basically going to be decided uh, after the 4th of March, very likely. We have uh, this tripartite situation uh, right now. Um, to conclude, um, obviously some caveats. Uh, predictions we all know uh, are tricky. Also, we have a lot of undecided right now that they're not actually answering the polls with a vote intention and also potential abstainers. Ipsos calculates that, th that they are around 34-35%, which is quite big. Um, a recent poll for um, Mentana's um, program actually puts an estimate at 45-47 even. So, you know, there is still... Potential undecided, and, um, and also the new electoral law. We really don't know how these majoritarian districts are really going to play out and how voters are going to um, basically react to this new electoral law. It's a, it's a new one, and it's the first time that they're going to, to vote under this law. So these are, you know, we, we have to take this with a grain of salt. Uh, right, I'm going to finish here. Uh, thank you so much, and I look forward to the questions. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, first of all. Uh, I guess there is a lot more than just uh, Italy uh, at stake, uh, given your participation. And, uh, and certainly there, there seems to be a lot of interest uh, for these uh, elections. I'm an economist, so uh, as an economist, I feel entitled, so to speak, to, to talk about politics and sociology, if you want, <laughs> a little bit. But uh, I'm, uh, keep in mind that I'm an economist. So let me start with some... Uh, economic uh, uh, concept here. I mean, the first uh, uh, point about the Italian election is usually people ask why there are so many protest votes and anti-establishment, uh, you know, parties or, you know, uh, support uh, in the electorate. And uh, I think there are mainly three reasons. The first reason, clearly, it's the economy, okay? Italy went through a big crisis, and as you can see here, there is a huge gap between Italy and the Eurozone in terms of GDP levels um, following the, the, the crisis. Um, we are talking about uh, more than 10 percentage points uh, a gap. And keep in mind that within the Eurozone, you, Italy is included, so actually the gap is even bigger. Um, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and actually, uh, this situation uh, hasn't really improved that much uh, recently, despite there is a a nice economic upswing right now. Um, Italy is still something like 4.7 percentage point below the levels of GDP prevailing before the crisis. So you can imagine that, uh, uh, you know, despite the recent uh, 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 improvement, 
there is no feel-good factor uh, uh, among the, uh, the voters. And second uh, point here, clearly with such a poor economic performance, uh, the other problem is unemployment. You see uh, unemployment here, um, youth unemployment is particularly high. We're talking about something close to 35%, and it is particularly severe in the South. And, uh, and that is the other reason. By the way, Five Star Movement has a lot of support um, among uh, uh, young voters, uh, resident in the South, unemployed. And, uh, you know, that's, that explains a lot. The, third, the second reason why there are so many uh, protest votes in Italy, I think, is immigration. Now, immigration has been badly managed, probably not just in Italy, but I would say in Europe. Um, I think the, uh, the demographics in Italy remain uh, uh, pretty poor. Um, government policies have tried to cope with the situation, uh, trying also to get some help from Europe, but with uh, not much success, I would say. And, uh, and the relationship has been pretty tough. Um, but uh, generally speaking, Italy is uh, very good in kind of saving lives, uh, uh, you know, uh, while people try to cross uh, the sea, but uh, it's, it's, it's far less uh, good in actually integrating immigrants. Um, the problem is also that there is a very high concentration of immigrants uh, in some areas of the country, and actually there, um, uh, uh, there is a, a, a research institute that came out just a few days ago just saying that the perception of the uh, amount of immigrants in the country is much higher than the actual number, okay? And, and it's not surprising, because at the end of the day, we are talking about 8.3% of the population, which is not a big number by European standards, okay? Uh, and we are talking about 5 million people. Uh, however, uh, the kind of uh, uh, age group between 18 and 39 is much higher, 14%. And again, immigration is very much con concentrated in the northern part of the country and in big cities. As you can imagine, I mean, the jobs are there. And, uh, and therefore, there, there is a perception. Also, crimes. Uh, there is a perception that crimes are, you know, made by immigrants, which, which is sometimes clearly correct, but it's not always true. But I think the issue is much broader than that. If we look at the uh, demographic composition of the country 10 years ago and the, uh, the composition now, there's been a huge change. Uh, basically, you see, uh, immigration was a huge phenomenon 10 years ago, uh, but starting from very low basis, and uh, clearly has declined during the crisis, uh, but uh, 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 the problem is that it, it would be much needed today because demographically the country is shrinking. Uh, uh, there are 60 million inhabitants, uh, but the natural rate is negative. So basically more people die than, people, <laughs> than we have uh, births in Italy. And, uh, and as you can see here, uh, women get uh, kids at uh, an increasingly older age. So effectively, in only 10 years, the, the composition of the population has changed in such a dramatic way, they inevitably had some uh, social consequences in terms of instability, in terms of insecurity, and, uh, and, uh, and that has actually you know, pushed uh, uh, voter preferences towards a kind of anti-establishment protest uh, movements. Very quickly, third reason, uh, the banking issues. Uh, you might not believe that, but actually it was a big, big issue in Italy. Uh, second half of 2016, mm -hmm. some banks 
were close to going under, okay, and there was a kind of systemic risk. Again, there was a tough uh, relationship between Italy, uh, the Italian government, and Europe for a number of reasons. I won't go into the details, but uh, you know, since then the situation has improved. But Italians are also big savers, and actually they have invested a lot in bank bonds, bank stocks, and so forth. So that was perceived a huge issue. Um, it's, it's well known that a uh, few banks were allowed to go under uh, at the end of 2015, uh, and uh, you know, it was a huge uh, you know, discussion, pain, big titles on newspapers, one pensioner committed suicide because he lost a lot of money and so forth, and basically it became a very big issue. By the way, uh, the former Prime Minister Renzi promoted a commission uh, in Parliament uh, to discuss uh, uh, the, uh, the banking crisis, tried to kind of shift away the responsibility to the Bank of Italy or the, the Italian watchdog, and it became a huge boomerang. It came back because basically uh, the result of the commission wasn't particularly favorable. But that is also a big issue again, why a lot of people are simply protesting. Um, the other big uh, uh, important thing that you should keep in mind is that Italy has a new electoral law I'm not, again, an expert on that, but it's really uncharted territory because uh, uh, the electoral law was done uh, in a hurry, so to speak. Um, it seems very simple on paper because basically you have 37% first-past-the-post uh, seats and 63% proportional representation, no majority premium. There are some thresholds. Uh, but then it, things get complicated because you have uh, one threshold for the coalition, you have a threshold for the party, so in order to be represented in parliament, you have to have 3%. But then you have another threshold, which is 1%. If you pass 1%, you, if you don't pass 3%, but you still pass 1%, uh, you basically give the votes to the coalition, okay, for free, already uh, distributed within the coalition. So you can imagine this triggers, you know, horse trading before the elections, basically. I run in coalition with you, but you allow me to have candidates and so forth. So things become very, very complex. Uh, winner and losers of the, of the electoral law, it was designed by the PD, the central left, uh, ended up uh, favoring the Five Star Movement and so, especially the central right. Uh, sorry, the Five Star Movement, the central right. The Five Star Movement is actually penalized. Why is that? Because effectively they, they said that we don't want to find any agreement with any other, we are not going to form alliances. The PD was supposed to form an alliance with the left, but the splitters from the PD decided not to, you know, uh, agree on anything. So basically, the PD who promoted the law, who expected to, to have a coalition with the left, uh, now is in, in bad shape. Uh, this is a kind of, I, I call it the coalition light, because it's not really a coalition, okay? It's, uh, you know, they prepare in a hurry a program, a leader, a list, uh, but... I, I bet that after the election, things will change. So there, there is a big... <laughs> a, I, thought, I thought it was funny, but not that much. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, I, I think it will change, okay? It, uh, it happened in the past, uh, but again, this kind of electoral law doesn't really push uh, uh, coalitions to, to, to stick together. Um, finally, I think there might be a risk also that the Constitutional Court, after the election, 
declares the, the elections invalid, no, not the election invalid, the election law invalid. The election would still be valid, okay, but clearly it would push for maybe new elections afterwards. Why is that? Because it's pretty strange the situation. Let me show you how it is. You are a voter, you go to the, uh, you know, you go to vote and uh, you have uh, basically uh, two choices. You can uh, put a sign on uh, the name of the first past the post candidate, okay, in that case, your vote would be split proportionally to the parties that are part of the coalition, or you can decide to put a sign on the party, and therefore your vote automatically would go to the uh, candidate for the first-past-the-post seat, and you have absolutely no say on the uh, list of candidates for the proportional presentation. So basically they are decided by the parties. So as a voter, you have very little choice, okay? You have very little choice. I'm saying this because it's the first time in Italy that this happens. Um, you, you have no possibility to have a split vote, okay? So say I decide for the candidate, but I decide differently for the party. And that can, can change things quite radically. So not only you have a big uncertainty related to uh, the first past the post, which uh, as we know very well in this country, can produce very skewed results, okay? But also, you can change the behavior of uh, voters because voters might decide, well, I don't like the candidate, therefore I have to change party as well, okay? So that could change the proportional part as well. So it's, uh, it's really tricky. Now, Miriam already presented some numbers, so I don't want to get into, you know, all the details here, but let me just say that the numbers that we have at the moment uh, by opinion polls, this is my elaboration of opinion polls, basically suggests that the only possible uh, government coalition is either a grand, grand coalition between the central right and the central left, which, you know, is possible, but the, it, it looks very uh, difficult. You can imagine you have to put together Northern League with the left, which is a bit, uh, a bit tricky. Uh, the other possible uh, coalition would be... Uh, put together the PD, the centrist, Berlusconi's party, and Brothers of Italy. Brothers of Italy could actually make the trick. So it could actually allow to have a majority in parliament. But, again, um, uh, that might prove to be pretty tricky. Uh, finally, if you want a kind of narrow grand coalition, so just uh, the kind of mainstream parties, the, uh, you know, PD, and uh, the Forza Italia, uh, at the moment, they don't have a majority in parliament. They don't, they don't get to the, to, the, to the number of seats that are required. So they would have to perform particularly well uh, in, in the elections. Uh, pretty difficult for the five-star movement to get an outright majority. That's why they are shifting strategy right now. They are trying to say, well, if we win, they will for sure be the first party, but they won't have enough seats in parliament. If we win, we will kind of put forward 20 points and we try to get agreement, so a sort of minority government. Most likely won't work, okay, but uh, they will probably come up first, but they won't have any chance. The other big risk or possibility, depending on the point of view, of course, <laughs> is that you have uh, what I call an anti-establishment uh, government. So the five-star movement joined forces with the Northern League, okay, and then, uh, at the moment, the numbers are not there, but they're not that far away. Okay? So there is possibly a risk for that. 
clearly would be a big shift because the Northern League would have to change coalition, would have to kind of say bye-bye to Berlusconi and say, okay, we move to faster movement. So it's possible. Yeah, this is very, my very subjective, again, very subjective. I take responsibility for that. Uh, <laughs> uh, judgment of what could happen. Again, most likely hung parliament. Then either you have a very narrow coalition, which would include PD, Forza Italia, and the centrist grouping. But again, they are still short of some votes in parliament to get there. Again, uh, hung parliament and the narrow or grand coalition, that would include brothers of Italy, again possible, politically a bit more difficult, clearly. Mm. Then you have a hung parliament, a broad grand coalition, even more difficult politically, but they would have the numbers. Finally, you have a hung parliament, no agreement, they keep fighting for six months, and then in six months' time, <laughs> you have new elections, which is again, well possible. Finally, outright victory of the central right. This is possible because there is a good momentum behind the central-right coalition, and again, first past the post, they can actually gain uh, a lot because they are leading in terms of coalition. So it's possible, um, not likely, but it's possible. And finally, what I call the nightmare scenario, again, two extremes, uh, five-star movement, the Northern League trying to kind of find uh, an agreement together. Very quickly, uh, what that means for Europe. Uh, first scenario, I think uh, mainstream parties, let's assume, uh, you know, the PD, so kind of continuation of what we have right now, and uh, uh, Berlusconi's party, probably not a big change in Europe, okay? Um, the idea of Italy is basically aligned with the Commission, so more mutualization, more European integration, more fiscal capacity, structural reforms, hopefully, investment, more investment activity, deepening of the single market, and probably support of the European uh, finance minister. But also, uh, they will push for more flexibility. They have done that all the times uh, over the, the past few years. And given the electoral promises, they will, I, I bet they will do even more. So they will actually push for more leeway, fiscal leeway, to support demand and more coordination also uh, in terms of policy at European level. Um, they will push for EU unemployment insurance, which I, don't, I think is not politically feasible, they will certainly push also for other items and certainly will put a lot of pressure to kind of implement uh, immigration policies in Europe. France will be probably a big ally with Italy. I mean, there seems to be a lot of uh, uh, a lot of uh, you know, synergies. Here. And uh, I, think I have to say that uh, at the beginning it was a big, uh, big problem because uh, Italy had a, a rocky start with Macron, but that is gone. Uh, with Germany, it's a little bit more tricky, but I think we are getting closer to uh, striking a deal on banking union, and I think that could be uh, uh, accepted. The very opposite scenario, but let me pass through this situation. In Italy, there, is still, uh, this, uh, there are very wrong uh, perceptions. Uh, uh, there are many wrong perceptions. One is that uh, uh, Italy is still under the pressure of the so-called austerity. Okay? Uh, numbers are not supportive at all. Italy went through a massive fiscal correction in 2012-2013. But since 2013, if you look at the primary surplus cyclically adjusted, a net of one-off, basically the structural primary balance calculated by the Commission, but also, uh, as you can see here, calculated by the government, effectively there has been a reduction of the primary surplus since 2013. So there's been a mildly accommodative expansionary policy, fiscal policy, since then, 
And, uh, but the perception in the country is that uh, there is still austerity, okay? And therefore, all countries, all parties are pushing to spend money. That's, that's how it is right now. Uh, so let's say that we move to the extreme scenario, that we have an anti-establishment government. Uh, well, that would be very problematic for Europe because uh, um, the Five Star Movement, and particularly the Northern League, they are claiming they want sovereignty back. It's like here in the UK. They want more leeway to do, you know, fiscal policies that are against the rules, the fiscal rules. And therefore, I would expect a very hard time. Uh, rules are certainly forget forgotten uh, by these parties. And uh, I think it would be a major headache in Brussels if they, if they win. Um, the good news is probably uh, they, there was a big push for even exiting the euro not long time ago, and uh, this country, these parties were contemplating, uh, well, uh, um, the Northern League, Salvini was very much uh, in line with Le Pen. Actually, Salvini participated in the uh, campaign in France with Le Pen, and, uh, and the Five Star Movement was always supporting uh, a referendum on the euro, so they were very much eurosceptic. They still are eurosceptic to some extent, but they have toned down their campaign, their claim, also because probably, according to opinion polls, Italians are really willing to protest, but probably they are not ready to take the big step of deciding to move out. So they probably, from an electoral point of view, they decided that they'd better uh, you know, uh, kind of forget to put aside that issue for now. Um, finally, there are you know, a lot of intermediate results, okay, depending on how it goes. For instance, a central-right government would probably some, be some, somewhat in the middle, because keep in mind that it would be formed by what is more moderate part, the, the Forza Italia, and the Northern League. The Northern League has become very much anti-immigrant, uh, nationalistic uh, party, anti-establishment, so it's, it's, it's moved to the right, so to speak. So keeping together these two uh, different animals would be tricky, and the result would be, uh, would be a difficult time in the relationship with, the, with Europe. I think I'll stop here. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, thanks a lot. I um, will change slightly the uh, perspective. I, instead of uh, thinking about um, possible election outcomes, I uh, want to think about uh, more generally, the, in the long term, what are kind of uh, economic problems Italy is facing and what the elections might mean for the chances that Italy will deal effectively with these economic problems. Uh, and so I want to start with a picture that is uh, similar in spirit to what uh, um, Lorenzo showed, which is a picture of uh, GDP per, work, uh, per person over time, across time. But I'm going to start earlier in time. Uh, Lorenzo started in 2007. I'm going to start in 1990, so I'm going to take a, a quarter-century perspective uh, to this. And I uh, just want to stare at this for a second. And I, I think it tells a picture of uh, three eras, or three periods, or three epochs uh, of Italian growth since 1990. So in the 90s are a period of seemingly decent, normal growth. Italy looks like a reasonably normal country, and I'll come back to that in a second. Then you have uh, the turnaround in 2000, and the Italy kind of plateaus. It reaches plateaus, and growth kind of stops, slows down dramatically, say, for several years. 
until the financial crisis. And so then we are traveling along this plateau, and then we reach the edge of the plateau in 2007, and we fall off. Uh, and then you have the two, uh, the double, the double whammy, 2007, 2008, the financial crisis, 2010, 2011, the sovereign debt crisis, and you see the catastrophic collapse. And so again, to compare to what Lorenzo showed you, Lorenzo's picture sh uh, uh, starts at the peak there. Uh, and then it shows just at the end. But I wanted to show you what life was before 2007. So, I mean, you might say, well, okay, what, what's special, is it just special about Italy? How does it compare? So again, Lorenzo showed you a comparison to the um, uh, Eurozone average. I'm gonna show you the comparison to two uh, large European countries, Germany and France. And so, you know, the 90s are a time where Italy looks pretty much indistinguishable from Germany, okay? Similar income levels, uh, very similar growth rates. Okay? It's, it's a normal country, it's a decent growth, per, growth performance. But then you see in, in the 2000s, the, it decouples, all right? Yeah, sure, Germany also slows down, but Italy slows down noticeably more than Germany, okay? They decouple these two, two countries. And look at France, throughout this period, 90s and 2000, France pretty much grow at very similar rate as Germany. Okay, and so Germany and France keep, move together. And Italy basically is the one that decouples from this growth process. And by the time the financial crisis hits, uh, France has caught up with Italy. And then, of course, Italy is hit by a much more severe crisis than these other countries. So it is a different experience. It is different from the other countries. <coughs> so the thing that is important to understand from this picture is that the difference starts in 2000. It doesn't start in 2007. The way you want to think about this uh, picture and the uh, recent uh, experience of Italy is this, that Italy from 2007 has a chronic underperformance compared to the others. Okay, think about it like an illness. It's like hip. No, the hip hurts. Uh, the hip is not working. Okay, so they're dragging their leg as they run. Okay, it's a chronic, a chronic condition. That was true from 2000, it's still true today. But on top of that, in 2007, 2008, 2011, Italy is hit by a second condition. Call it a heart attack, or two heart attacks. All right? The financial crisis, heart attack, and the sovereign debt crisis, heart attacks. And you have to think about these two things differently. Okay? There is the long-term condition, the long-term chronic problem, and then there is a short-run, but potentially fatal uh, uh, crisis with the, with the, with the, with the 2008-2011. So when we think about the elections, we need to ask the question, at least I, I like to ask the question, what, the, what are the elections likely to do to the acute condition, the heart attacks, and what is it likely to do with the chronic condition, the hip, the hip problem, all right? And I wanna start with the heart attack because you know, the hip problem is gonna hurt like hell, but it's not gonna, not gonna kill you, and the heart attack can kill you. So I want to start with that. I want to start, are we going to still have a live patient, you know, after these elections? Um, 
So what is the problem with the heart? What is the heart attack? Well, the, the most severe one, the 2011 one, was the uh, sovereign debt crisis when uh, international investors started doubting uh, or asking questions about the ability of the Italian government to repay its very, very large debt. And as a result of that, the spreads on Italian bonds went through the roof, and that caused a major credit crunch in the economy and caused a collapse in economic activity. Now, there are some signs of recovery, as, as Lorenzo pointed out, uh, timid, slow signs of recovery. Okay? So the patient is maybe starting to think about coming out of the emergency room. But the debt is still there. The 130% debt-to-GDP ratio is still there. Uh, the problems in the banking sector in terms of the uh, questionable nature or quality of the balance sheets are still there. And so the, so the country is still essentially at the mercy of invest, international investor sentiment. Okay? If international investors panic, as they did in 2011, we could see another resurgence of interest rates, another credit crunch, no, new problems with the banking sector, and so on, we could have another big collapse like the one we saw in 2011. All right, now, um, the last time that uh, international markets panicked about Italy, the prime minister was Berlusconi. Um, it is true that Berlusconi is not going to be prime minister again, but there is one scenario, I forget the probability, uh, where there is a center-right coalition in government where Berlusconi is essentially the de facto prime minister, or at least he shares that responsibility with Salvini, who is even more scary than Berlusconi. So, um, now you might say that there is one thing that has changed dramatically since 2011, and that is that markets have learned a lot about the determination of the current leadership of the ECB to contain spreads. In, uh, you might say that in 2011 it was not clear that the ECB would do whatever it takes, to use the cliche, to uh, contain spreads uh, in the euro area, and now they know. But it is also true that Draghi's term ends in 2019, that is next year, and it is also true that one of the front runners for the job is Jens Weidmann. <coughs> now, if you are scared about any of the outcomes from the Italian elections, those risks are dwarfed by how scary it is to think about Jens Weidmann running the ECB. Uh, and so, careful about that and careful about being complacent. Um, bottom line, you can imagine scenarios where um, the outcomes of the election is so, uh, uh, so scary to uh, financial markets where we do get another heart attack. And that would be essentially, uh, I think, possibly, of course I cannot, don't know for sure, but possibly center-right government and, of course, possibly also a five-star government, which, however, is a very low probability event. 
Okay, so that's the heart attack issue. That's how what the elections might or may not win mean for this, uh, you know, this, this, this severe fluctuations, this severe collapse in income that Italy experienced since the financial crisis and sovereign debt crisis. What about the hip replacement problem? What about the longer term issue, the issue that started in 2000? What, what can we expect from that? Well, of course, I mean, I, I, I don't have the time, and of course, no, nor have I the, the, the degree of confidence to talk with any confidence and, and not have the time to discuss all of the reasons that caused Italy to so severely underperform both Germany and France and many other countries since 2000. Let's just say, to make it very short and very uh, uh, simple, that Italy suffers from an exceptionally inefficient public sector and an equally exceptionally inefficient private sector. All right? Now, um, what, do you do, what do you need in the public sector? Many, many things, of course. One thing that would be incredibly crucial would be a profound reform of the public administration uh, in terms of the recruitment processes, incentive, the culture, promotions, uh, work methods. It, it needs to be completely redone. Uh, in the private sector, again, the list is enormous of things to do. Uh, of course, a reform of the public administration would also help the private sector a lot because it would... Uh, allow for a much better interface with the regulatory environment, with the legal environment, um, and so on. It would also, among many other things, be uh, crucial to change uh, product markets to make it much easier for, uh, uh, for challengers to come in, start firms, and challenge the exceptionally inefficient incumbents that we have in many, many sectors. Um, there would be, a, among other, again, among many other things, uh, we need a big change in the financial sector to get banks to start lending not to the politically connected, not to the economically powerful, but to the entrepreneurial, to the innovative, to the challengers, again, uh, who, uh, are, as of now, are, are not getting that from, from the banking sector to, to the standard they, they would need and so on, and so forth, and so, and so on. So, the, so there are a lot of deep, difficult, uh, profound reforms that the country would need for the, for the problem of long, or for the longer, long-term chronic problem of growth. And, and I, I just came in the surface with the ones I mentioned. So now, in my opinion, the, the only major Italian politicians who have showed a degree of understanding uh, that these are the challenges, and a degree, or at least some aspirations uh, to address these challenges uh, uh, over the last 20 years has been Matteo Renzi. Uh, and indeed, 2014 has been the only year where I felt mildly optimistic about the prospects of Italy in the long run. Uh, of course, uh, uh, Renzi, because of his... Uh, absolute uh, arrogance uh, made a major tactical blunder uh, with the referendum uh, on constitutional reform, which cost him the premiership, and probably also cost him uh, long-term uh, uh, damage to, to, to his own uh, 
willingness to, uh, to engage in this kind of risky uh, bet that the country so desperately needs. So I, I have no idea what kind of man Renzi is today. I mean, I, it's, 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 in, in politics, uh, two or three years uh, is a lifetime, and he could be a completely different man. I have no idea if he has the same uh, reformist zeal, but I do think that if there is um, one um, hypothetical scenario uh, purely theoretical, I come to probability in a second, a theoretical scenario in which the elections give a rise to a result that where we can hope for the kind of reforms that would address the long-term uh, growth progress, pro problems of Italy would be a uh, uh, government of the, of the left with, um, with, with Renzi as prime minister and with a strong mandate. And this scenario has exactly zero probability uh, <laughs> in terms of, of the election. All right, so that's, uh, that's what I wanted to say. Essentially, the, the, my conclusion is that in terms of this election, uh, the best we can hope is that we don't get a second heart attack or a third heart attack. Um, and even if we don't get a heart attack uh, from these elections, uh, we are not going to get the hip replacement that we need. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, and thank you to all three of you for, for great, um, great depth in terms of information, analysis, and entertainment as well. Um, I kind of wish there was no audience and I could just ask more questions, but I think that would be perhaps too rude. So I will open up the floor for questions from all of you uh, and then see if I can feed in a few of my own. But um, please, um, there are roaming mics so when you ask a question, uh, please uh, state your name and where you're from, uh, and, I will, uh, and make sure that you wait for the mic to arrive, because otherwise we won't be able to hear you if you're sitting towards the back. So please, any questions? Short, precise questions, please. I've got a very short, precise question. Excellent. Thank uh, you. Yes. I understand, if you just co confirm, that it is compulsory to vote in Italian elections. Uh, it's not the problem. Is that, am I right in that assumption? I, I don't think no. so. No, that's no, not, it's not compulsory. compulsory. No. Okay, but that was a very precise, good question. <laughs> Thank you for starting with that. I saw that there was a hand on the side here. No, you took down your hand. Okay. Um, Mario Pietrunti, UCL. Um, just a question about the elephant in the room uh, in Italy, which I think is uh, Italian public debt which is an issue that so far no party has tackled apart, as far as I know, uh, more Europe, which is the party led by the former European Commissioner Emma, Emma Bonino, who declared that uh, public debt is a drug on, uh, the European on the Italian economy and especially on the youth. Okay. So I just wanted to know your... Yeah. I think because now the hands are starting to come up, so I think we'll collect three questions before we go back to the speakers. There's one here in the front, please. The lady in the yellow. Yeah. Hi, I'm Anna from Rome. Uh, I was wondering whether in your research regarding the policies that the parties mentioned, whether there was anything about actually education in Italy, especially when it comes to possible solutions that have to be brought in the long term, considering that our education system, especially university, is very not integrated within the private sector, within the job sector, and the future generation is coming out with very little practical experience and in a very big unemployment. And if you've seen anything about it in the research or if you have any opinion about it. 
Brilliant. Thank you. There was a question in the front row over here. Could you take the mic? Yeah. Sorry. I, yeah, okay. Yeah, Bernard Casey from Social Economic Research in Frankfurt. Um, I was going to ask about the HIP, um, which is the long-term problem and the demography of Italy, which seems to be weighing Italy down, and I would suspect has been weighing it down for even longer than the chart here suggests. The immigration issue is potentially a way of dealing with the demographic issue. I mean, Germany has exactly the same uh, challenge in what might be done with the immigrants in Germany. But rationally, there seems to be very little acceptance that immigration is likely to provide a solution. Um, okay. Are there any political parties which have been rather more open to the issue of immigration in, and the potential benefits of immigration in Italy and what is hindering them from putting their views forward? Okay, thank you very much. I think that if we start off, Miriam, do you want to go first? Okay, on the uh, education and, uh, and the immigration um, as well. Um, right, in terms of education, so if I understood it correctly, it's whether there is some plan for uh, modernizing it. Um, I don't think it's very salient from what I've been, you know, listening and uh, at the moment, I mean, the campaign is really uh, taking over slowly, right? But... Um, so Matteo Renzi is talking about you know culture and and science and uh, helping that and uh, resourcing that, but not uh, as much on you know secondary schools. It seems to be where you were going. The Five Star Movement is also talking a little bit. Was talking in in, his, uh, in their twenty points thing. They're talking about the the schools, but. What they seem to be saying is like they don't like the Buona Scuola reform uh, by Renzi. Uh, this um, you know, has to do with teacher allocations, or they're also talking about roofs falling down and you know, more in infrastructure kind of way, and again, against uh, what has been done by the Democratic Party. So I haven't, as far as I know, I haven't heard anything very strongly on modernizing uh, education in Italy. Um, f for the immigration bit, the, there are parties that are uh, liberty, equality, uh, free, and and, um, and equal. Uh, the splinter party from the PD has some ex exponents like uh, Boldrini, for example, that have um, you know also highlighted that immigration is. Uh, of course, we're, we're dealing with a refugee crisis, but that's another matter. Immigration can be uh, beneficial. Uh, the thing is that it's not very palatable. Italians don't want to hear it. Um, so it's you know it's quashed sort of by the extreme right and the populist discourse on that. Yeah, okay. yeah I take uh, the one on debt. I mean, debt, uh, uh, I mean, there's no magic uh, solution here. I mean, there's uh, no, uh, you know, uh, simple uh, stuff. I mean, the, 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 the solution is pretty straightforward. It's the, the, the one that uh, has been suggested by many international institutions, by the Bank of Italy and so forth. You have to bring... Um, uh, gradually, but uh, not uh, not too gradually, so to speak, the, the primary surplus back to four or five percent and keep it there for for the time being, so that uh, you know the debt dynamics keeps uh, declining. Um, uh, you have to do it uh, gradually because uh, clearly the the economic uh, uh, situation is not uh, strong enough to guarantee another you know strong dose of uh, uh, fiscal consolidation. But uh, the good news is that Italy is not that far away, okay? Because Italy has gone, has recorded a primary surplus throughout 
the the financial crisis. So it's not uh, it's not that far. You just need a one one and a half percent uh, uh, adjustment uh, or spread over one a couple of years, two or three years. Uh, that would be enough, and then you stay there basically, and then you gradually. Uh, reduce the debt to GDP ratio. Clearly, um, demographics are quite challenging. I mean, when uh, you talk about uh, uh, debt sustainability, demographics comes in because uh, uh, you know productivity and potential growth over the long run depends also on demographic trends, and so it becomes uh, uh, challenging. Uh, that means that uh, you know if you look at the sustainability report made by the Commission and other institutions. Uh, probably for Italy, over the medium term, it would be appropriate not only to have a zero uh, budget balance uh, in structural terms, but probably it would be appropriate to move to a surplus of half percentage point or maybe one percentage point, again, to, to kind of offset uh, uh, the, the effect of negative uh, demographics. Uh, it's something that can be done. It's not totally uh, unfeasible. Um, um, there have been a number of spending reviews in Italy over the years. Uh, it's just a matter of political will at the end of the day. I mean, technically speaking, uh, the, we know everything about uh, how to do it. <laughs> okay, yeah, uh, I'm also, um, I want to tackle uh, the public debt and education question. I think they're linked. Um, so, of course, uh, there are uh, enormously important things to change in the education system. Um, both, uh, both secondary, both, both schooling and, and university. Uh, and and the, the big problem is that, is that public debt. So these two issues, the public debt and the education, are, are very closely linked because um, the kind of thing, changes that are required in the education system would probably be quite expensive. And uh, Italy is a country with a very large public debt. It's already very constrained in its ability to spend money. That's a little bit one reason why I, I didn't mention it in my list before, my very short list before, because I, I think there is a sense where uh, when there is so little money, uh, you, you try to need to come up with policies that will not be that expensive. And, and, and perhaps some uh, product market reforms or financial changes in financial markets may be less expensive than reforming the education system, uh, even though, of course, it is incredibly important uh, too. Um, so I, I think the... Unfortunately, realistically, uh, radical action in, in that, on that front, we have to wait until Italy can afford, can afford uh, to intervene there. Now, having said that, uh, so, so the public debt is a drug, uh, to come back to one of the questions. It is a drug, be, be, I think mostly because it's, it's constrained the ability of the government to do things that we need. I mean, another thing that stops us from doing is infrastructure investment, which I think would also be very, very important. Uh, now, having said that, uh, there is the question of uh, uh, how to uh, go back to a path of reduction in debt to GDP ratio in, in, in Italy and how fast. And here I want to uh, register my dissent from Lorenzo's uh, comments. There are two things he said that I, 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 I want to respond to. One, one thing he said uh, when he was up at the letter, and he, he, he sort of kind of he described Italy as a country where austerity is finished. And, and I think that's dependent a little bit on how you define, define austerity. I mean, for me, a country that has, you know, is today, you know, 5% poorer than it was 10 years ago, and where unemployment is something in the 11, 12% uh, range, 
where youth unemployment exceeds 20%, to run a primary surplus, I mean, for me, that's austerity. Uh, the, the fact that the government is essentially subtracting demand from the economy, for me, that's austerity. I mean, of course, you can define it in different ways, but for me, that's not the normal reaction of a government that is faced with uh, a collapse in, in, in living standards of 5% after 10 years. Um, I also think, uh, going back to my analogy of the heart attack, that um, the idea of adding one or two percentage, percentage points of GDP to the primary surplus today is, uh, is reckless uh, and, and very, very dangerous. Uh, we, are, we are trying very, very tentatively to, uh, to emerge from, from this deep, deep, deep recession. And I think, uh, again, doing anything that will reduce aggregate demand uh, at this very delicate moment, is, it can be very dangerous for the economy. So I, I, would, I would definitely uh, go much, much slower on that front. Okay. I know that there are more questions, but I also know that the, the two of you have uh, comments to each other almost. So I'm very uh, brief. Okay. Yeah, I have a, you know. Uh, I have a slightly different view than, than Francesco, but I'll explain. But I haven't really answered the question on, uh, on uh, uh, the, the policy proposed by uh, the list plus Europe or the Boninos list. Actually, it's the only part in Italy that is clearly proposing uh, uh, zero growth in expenditure, okay? for the time being, in order to kind of uh, uh, reduce the, the debt-to-GDP ratio. It is feasible. It's difficult. Okay, it's pretty difficult. I have to say that also the PD has done uh, very prudent policies over the past uh, few years, so the central left. The only problem, that's my, my personal view, is that uh, uh, Renzi started very well. I agree with Francesco, actually. Uh, I think uh, the government uh, introduced a very important uh, labor market reform, which I think will produce results over time, and did some other good things, uh, um, but then started gradually to, to change uh, tack. Why is that? Because uh, I think the peak in opinion polls was with the European elections when the PD reached uh, about 40% of the, of the support. Then since then, it started declining steadily for the reasons of you know, the economic crisis, the immigration, and so forth. And uh, uh, Renzi started to behave like a populist. So uh, he was under pressure uh, from the populist, and he started to believe like a populist. So um, basically, um, you know, when you are in a situation like that, you go for the original, not the copy. So they, you know, voters uh, <laughs> went for the, for the populist, the real populist. <laughs> and, then, and then I think the situation has deteriorated. On, on the debt, very, very briefly, on the debt, I think... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of disagree because you know the, the kind of uh, uh, international uh, accepted measure for for uh, what is the fiscal stance is you know the primary surplus. If you move from a, a primary surplus that is uh, smaller uh, uh, from higher to smaller, that means that effectively you are losing policy. Now, uh, 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 is there a feel-good factor in Italy? No, there's no feel-good factor. Again, as I mentioned, uh, you know, the GDP level is much lower than before the crisis. Unemployment is much higher. Uh, is it appropriate a tighter fiscal policy right now? Uh, well, I would say yes, because, uh, uh, you know, although it's an issue with aggregate demand, of course, you have to do that very selectively and, uh, and, uh, and, and reduce, uh, uh, not increase taxation clearly, but reduce spending on a very selective basis in order to kind of re rebuild some kind of buffer because otherwise, as you mentioned, the country remains vulnerable. 
Okay, thank you. So I have a question from the lady on the second row. Um, yeah, so this talk today is uh, what do the Italian election mean for Europe? So I would just like to hear your expert views on what the newly elected Italian government, what would be the best thing they can do for Italy and for Europe and what could be the worst thing that could happen, uh, for example, if Italy decides to leave the EU? Great, thank you. There's a question a bit further up on the same side. With, uh, the gentleman with the glasses there, yeah. Um, thank you. Tom Bosman, British civil servant. And my question, if this doesn't sound too strange, is directed at Francesco's hip, um, which is that I probably agree that you have a trilemma here of uh, high public debt, low productivity growth, and the need to, to maintain a, uh, a budget surplus, which is intractable for the centre ground. And the question for you, therefore, is where do you place your vote? Is it time to talk about more radical policy of Italy taking a holiday from the euro? Because at least then you can devalue uh, and inflate away some of the debt. Okay, great. And here in the front, yeah. Uh, just a quick question about if there is any research out there. What are the voting statistics or voting um, prediction showing for Italians voting from abroad? What is their view and possible outlook on the Italian elections? Myself, um, I'm a student at the University of Kent. I'll be voting from, obviously, the UK. Thanks. Okay, great. We'll start again from, with you, Miriam, please. Okay. Um, yeah, so on the question on what, what do they mean for Europe, I think that no matter what the outcome is, I mean, we have strong pro-European elements on the center-left, um, but um, we've seen that Euroscepticism in Italy is on the rise. And so I think that no matter what government goes there, they're going to have to face um, this, the popular Euroscepticism, and especially the dissatisfaction with uh, the European response, for example, to the immigration crisis, um, also the, dis the dissatisfaction uh, with austerity policies. Um, a lot of, you know, the blame for uh, the economic downturn is often um, given to Europe. Um, so they will have to... I mean, Matteo Renzi tried to paint himself as uh, the Italian Macron. Uh, <laughs> but, at, I mean, at the moment, again, they're cat, uh, caught between these infighting, so they haven't really properly started the campaign. Um, so some level of reform, some level of um, new Italian uh, negotiation strength will probably uh, appear in, in Europe, um, right? Some, um, if the centre-left is in government, it might be, you know, let's reform Europe, let's make it work better, let's solve the inefficiencies because otherwise, down the line, this Euroscepticism is only going to grow. Um, in, in the sort of nightmare scenario that <laughs> you were painting, if the, if the Five Star Movement has given a signal that it would accept a coalition with the Lega, but then the you know, Five Star Movement supporters are not, they don't approve this idea. But if that happens, then I think that would be the, 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 probably for Europe the worst case scenario because, um, I mean, Di Maio has moderated his stance, that's true. They, 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 you know, the referendum on the common currency is a measure of last resort. So, 
he's trying to reassure investors and uh, businesses and all of that. Um, but he's still going to, you know, negotiate in Europe for having flexibility, for having sort of more sovereignty back home. So that um, I can see that could be potentially problematic. Probably also the inexperience uh, might be problematic when going and negotiating at the EU level. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's good. Europe has some inefficiencies. It's good to be uh, sort of uh, follow Macron a little bit. And, you know, we should reform this project. But you need to know what you're doing. And the Northern League and the League um, is definitely their a sovereignty party, so they won't accept anything that uh, puts the Italian constitution below, basically, the, the European treaty. So that would be a sort of an extreme scenario for Europe um, that we might fear. Yeah. Thanks, uh, Mira. Yeah. Francesco, I think you should react to the uh, drastic suggestion of whether to take a pause from the Eurozone altogether for Italy. So... Uh, it's it's a tough one. I mean, I I don't I don't have uh, any kind of fetish for the euro, uh, and I you know I, I do think that uh, Greece, for example, uh, made a terrible mistake to stay in. Um, so I, I in principle, it's not something that uh, I think one should go to unreasonable length to stay in. Uh, there are two buts. One is. Um, that it, it depends a lot on what eurozone do we have. Uh, I mean, one is the euro. There is, there is a eurozone of Draghi, uh, that's good for us. Um, and then there is a eurozone of Weidmann, uh, that would be bad for us. So that's it's not. I, I don't think you can completely isolate the question from what's happening in um, uh, in the rest of the eurozone. Um, I mean, the other thing is that. As, as Greece teaches us, any kind of uh, separation is technically, legally, and politically incredibly complicated. And so it would take a team of exceptionally skillful and pre well-prepared people to pull it off in a way that doesn't cause utter chaos. And there is absolutely no prospect that any of the parties that... Uh, we run the country, we'll have the kind of uh, uh, a, a political sang-froid and, uh, and, and knowledge and, and, uh, and, and charisma and leadership skills and technical skills to do it right. So, yes, I, th I mean, my bottom line is, yes, it's a tempting idea, um, but uh, probably too risky. So, I, you know, at least while drug is there, let's stay in. Okay, thanks. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, very. Uh, let, let, me, let me design uh, two, two extreme scenarios, then you can work out uh, what is in the middle, basically. <laughs> I think, uh, uh, let's say, I'm not hugely negative about, you know, the, the outcome of the elections in a sense that, uh, suppose that indeed uh, uh, there is a way to go for a narrow, narrow coalition, which, again, the numbers are not uh, feeble at the moment, but uh, it might well be, you know, one way or the other. You get some kind of mainstream parties, you know, kind of, Putting, you know, to, to putting together the forces to come up with a government. Um, it would not necessarily be a negative solution. Keep in mind that there are some difficult choices, uh, such as you know, cutting on the expenditure side and stuff like that, that uh, no political party can really afford right now. It's difficult politically, extremely difficult, electorally. So if you have a broad coalition, sometimes it could work 
Uh, it could work, okay, in a better way, because nobody is going to be to be uh, held responsible for 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 the decisions. So potentially it could be good. If that happens, uh, I think the uh, European, uh, the Italian government will continue to be very much pro-European, supporting the European process. As you know, uh, the next six months are crucial for Europe because there is a big discussion about uh, renewing governance and so forth. The Italian government traditionally has been very European on these subjects. Um, uh, so I think it will continue, even if there is a broad coalition to be reasonably uh, supportive for, for, for this kind of process. And again, I think uh, I'm not particularly optimistic about major steps in the in integration, but there are some uh, uh, deliverables that can be achieved quite easily over the near term. Um, the opposite scenario is that you get a kind of anti-establishment, anti-euro party, and then you get into trouble for Europe because, again, um, uh, um, they would go, would go uh, intrinsically against the spirit of integration, okay? When you have a party that says, we want to bring sovereignty back, mm. we want to, you know, uh, put Italy first. <laughs> you know, sounds familiar to some extent, but, uh, you know, then uh, you, you definitely this is anti-European, okay? So I would say um, uh, you put at risk not only the financial sustainability of the country, um, but also uh, the European integration process, because um, one thing is having... Uh, Greece as a problematic country within uh, Europe, and a totally different—it's uh, it's a totally different ga ball game to have Italy, because of the size of the economy, and uh, and that would basically cause problems for the integration process, in my view. Miriam, do you have an answer to the question about the uh, Italians the abroad polls? Uh, no, I haven't seen so far polls uh, for the Italians abroad, so I don't uh, have that information, unfortunately. But the representation of Italians uh, abroad. Oh yeah, I, I mean it's um, it's only it's few seats actually in the parliament, so it's not going to be uh, massively. Uh, it's not going to tip the scales uh, massively. So we only have um, 12. yeah twelve twelve seats that um, you know are voted from Italians abroad. So. But that's people that are resident permanently. It's not students yeah. who are abroad. So I think that's important uh, for the audience here that you. No, if you are uh, if you are in the IRE register, uh, even if you're an I Erasmus see. student. Okay. Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Let's take another round of questions. I see quite a few hands. The lady in the front here. Thank you. Um, if I can just ask, you've, you've obviously answered what do the Italian elections mean for Europe but what do the Italian elections mean for the UK specifically regarding Brexit? Could it be that Britain's most sympathetic and influential ally inside the EU during the Brexit process, could that be Italy and does that depend on who wins? Great, okay thanks. There was a gentleman just behind yeah. I'll take four questions this round yeah. Thanks Now there's been a lot of talk here about the mainstream parties but uh, I think it's important to talk about also the other more extremist organizations, like on the far left, there's groups like Potere al Popolo, which is trying to copy Corbyn's youthquake here in the UK. But also, we ha there's also, over the past few years, there's been a rise of support for extremist neo-fascist organizations like Casa Pound and Forza Nuova. I was wondering what you think the outcome would be for these extremist groups uh, in these elections and how it would influence Italian politics in the future. Okay, thank you. There was a lady here. And then, uh. Uh, Justina Goldsmith University. I would like to ask if the next question in the next years, shall we expect some rise, massive rise perhaps, in nationalism in the Italy, thinking that 
you know, massive unemployment, public debt, economic struggles could possibly lead to slower integration in European Union. Okay, thanks. And the gentleman up here. Yeah, thanks. Daniela Caprera. Uh, my question is uh, uh, about your perception of incompetence on the five-star movement on running economics, especially in any place that run uh, with the mayor, they've been cutting the deficit. And also on the European side, I just want you to make aware that the vice president of the European Union is Massimo Castaldo from the Five Star Movement. Thank you. Thank you. Would you like to start, Francesco? So I, um, with your question whether Brexit will make things harder for Italy because they won't have the UK as an ally, is that, was that what you were saying? No. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I um, we're talking about a country that is is um, just keeping its head just above the water level and 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 trying to get get some occasional gasps of air. I think worrying about what's going to happen with the Brexit is so low in the, in the list of, of concerns here. Yeah. yeah, okay. Well, that was clever. It's good to keep your doors open, I guess. Yeah. Miriam, would you like to... Um, yeah, uh, okay. On the question... Um, Parties on the extremes. Yeah, on the question of the extremes and also nationalism. Um, yes, I guess this is a concern and it is on the rise and it's, poten it's a potential problem. I mean, in, in terms of uh, this election... They don't, um, they don't have enough, uh, a, a big percentage of votes. They're probably not going to end up in the parliament. But it is true that, you know, the, the crisis and the refugee crisis is um, definitely um, um, making these uh, extremes rise again. And we've had, like, a very troubled, like, a, a horrific also example of uh, racism by a member of the League that is actually candidate for the Lombardy region. So you know, the league is pretty extreme in itself, right? And then we have these, uh, again, these extremes and, uh, you know, talking about, you know, the white race and these things that we thought we, we would never hear again. But, um, yes, uh, I guess it's a, mi a mixture of the, the economic conditions but the, of the immigration uh, and the refugee crisis as well and how badly it has been managed that um, is leading to these opinions to, to rise again, which could be potentially problematic in the future. What do you um, think? Yeah, very briefly. On, on the Brexit, I mean, it's totally absent in the domestic debate, I have to say. Uh, but you know that Farage is a great fan of Grillo and uh, the Five Star Movement, so basically uh, they want to replicate the kind of uh, platform, the Internet platform, and uh, the kind of uh, dark democracy and stuff like that. So I would, I would guess that if, if the Five Star Movement gets, power, gets into power, they would be a strong supporter for hard Brexit, so to speak. And, uh, but that's, uh, that's really uh, very conjectural, so to speak. On, uh, uh, on uh, competence, uh, and unfortunately I had the uh, experience to accompany my 
different ministers over the, over the years when I was at the Treasury and parliamentary commissions where, you know, I had to kind of had the pleasure to meet a number of people. And I, have, I cannot speak very high about the competence of the five-star movement, let's put it away. But uh, um, it's normal. I mean, it's a new movement, okay? So you cannot expect to have, uh, you know, young people, new movement, so you cannot expect to have. What is more kind of uh, worries, worrisome, worrying in my view, is that uh, um, if you look at the program, it's not internally consistent, so to speak. It's a, it's a, they're, they're, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a patchwork, basically. And the number of ideas put uh, here and there, because that's what is called dark democracy. So basically, they they do a kind of consultation online, and whatever comes, you know, they put in, and and that's it's not internally consistent, effectively. Yeah, can I also jump jump in on 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 the five star movement? Um, I mean, yeah, this is the main problem, the flip-flopping and the not having a very coherent line. And this might also be due to, well, clearly by, you know, this uh, ideal of direct democracy. And we all know that direct democracy actually has a lot of flaws. Um, it's, um, you know, tyranny of, of the majority, first of all, of the majority that votes in a particular consultation. But it's also, uh, you, you can have one day voting a pro-Europe, very pro-Europe thing, and then the next day a very anti-Europe thing, because that's how the direct democracy works. Um, and, and so that's also an element of, you know, when you go to negotiate in Europe, you, you have to sort of have your ideas very clear. And... Um, on, on the thing that they would necessarily approve of the hard Brexit, I'm not sure. And again, because of this flip-flopping. If you, there is a study on that has looked at roll call voting in the European Parliament by members of the Five Star Movement. It's true, they are um, together in a, in a European party with the, the UKIP, but they hardly ever vote together. And so that's another thing. They say they are Eurosceptic. During the 2014 campaign, they you know, said the Euro was a, a, a bad idea and that Europe was taking advantage of, uh, of Italy. But then when they vote in the European Parliament, they don't vote uh, like UKIP. They vote uh, like the mainstream parties, uh, especially. And they asked ALDI, which is the most pro-European party, to actually uh, be part of ALDI, which was, to me was puzzling. You know? And this is what I mean by sort of incompetence, right? That, that you do these strategic choices that do not make sense and might throw off uh, the person that is talking to you. Uh, so in a way, I don't know if they would actually support a hard Brexit because when they vote on Europe, they're actually in Europe, in the European Parliament, they actually seem to be wanting a lot of Europe. They want, uh, you know, a, a European response to the immigration crisis. They vote differently from UKIP. But definitely, it's a more it's strategic. They are anti-Europe stance. It's very strategic um, because they know that the Italian electorate is sort of Eurosceptic, and so they don't want to be... Again, and again, that's a problem. They don't want to be very clear on what they want because they want to amass votes. And this is what, you know, it's the populist uh, element of that party that is problematic. Really. I mean, can I say one thing about this? Yeah. It, it, it doesn't really matter what various Italian parties think about Europe or Brexit because Italy has virtually no influence anyway uh, <laughs> in, in European affairs. So it's, it's a non-issue. I mean, it's, non, it's, it's not that important. I mean, we, we, have, we have almost no negotiation power whatsoever. I mean, we, we're just praying Draghi lasts, but, you know, that's pretty much what we can do. Um, we have no uh, rep reputation for, you know, people like Berlusconi being prime ministers. I mean, uh, it, it's, just not, it's just not a credible influence in, in European affairs, so it doesn't really matter. Okay, I think on that uh, very uh, positive note, we are having to finish. Now...
Now, before you all leave, can you just, before you all leave, I just uh, wanted to highlight a couple of things. First of all, please um, keep an eye out on our remaining events in this series. Um, there are lots of very interesting speakers coming up. Um, I also think that a big takeaway from this uh, debate is that you should all make sure to vote. Uh, and then we should perhaps reconvene after all of these events have unfolded and see where that leaves us. But thank you so much to all the panelists, to all of you for coming tonight.